Welcome to the Coeur Adventist Podcast. Created, produced, and directed by the members of the Coeur Seventh-day Adventist Church. To connect. To grow. To grow. To worship. To reflect Jesus. Let's discover what we can do. Together. 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 Welcome to Interviews, where we take the time to get to know individuals in our faith community a little better. My name is R.J. Henneberg, and for this episode, we are continuing the trend of interviewing a member who has been involved in mission work overseas. This member is known for his passion, his love of theology, and his overall warmness. Today, we are talking with Tony Henneberg. Now, I am a little biased, but he has displayed to me an amazing sound faith, and in my life, he is most responsible for shaping who I am today. So let's get to know him a little better. Some call him Deward. Little ones call him Tone. <laughs> a few call him T-Bone. <laughs> but I call him my dad. Tony Henneberg. <laughs> Good afternoon, RJ. Good afternoon. I've been trying not to have family but you're too doggone interesting. Couldn't avoid it. So here we are. <laughs> um, how long have you been a member at Coeur d'Alene? Pretty close to 40 years, 39. Oof. I guess let's let's hear your story. How'd you, how'd you grow up and uh, all that type of stuff? How'd it begin? Well, okay. I don't know if you're sure you want to ask your old man some questions. You might... Uh... <laughs> Find out some things you wish you didn't know. Great. <laughs> well, I was born in Nebraska. And when we were three years old, my dad and mom took me to Curacao. They started a missionary uh, journey. And Curacao is a little island just north of Venezuela, where it's hot the year round. Um, very poor vegetation. And we lived there three years. Real time of adjustment, particularly in for my mom, who grew up near Colfax as an only daughter and um, lived pretty comfortably. So this was a real adjustment. After three years, my dad got a call to Venezuela, Caracas, the capital. We were happy about that. When we arrived in Venezuela, unfortunately, it was when a wave of anti-Americanism moved in. So uh, it was a little uncomfortable in that respect, but uh, my dad enjoyed his work, and that's where we uh, started school, my brother and I, in Spanish at a little church school there. So were you, did your family know Spanish? Oh, no, we didn't know any Spanish. My dad didn't know German. He grew up in North Dakota and knew German before he knew English. So German probably wasn't real helpful in Curacao. No. <laughs> I think he was in Venezuela for about three weeks when he had to give his first sermon in Spanish, and uh, he always thought he had the gift of tongues after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were there for three years, enjoyable years, and then we got a call to Bogota, Colombia. My dad was to be the conference president there. Whoa. We went to we went to Bogota thinking that was going to be a pleasant place to live, but that I don't know if you remember those that was in the 1950s. I don't remember when there was. <laughs> Well, there was real persecution of all Protestants. One of my dad's main jobs was to go to prisons and try to get our members out before they were killed. Oh. So each trip that he took, and he'd be gone sometimes for a week at a time or so, 
was real nerve-wracking for us because we never knew if he'd come home or if he'd be put in prison himself. After three years there, we got a call to Havana, Cuba. And we thought, won't that be nice? Just 90 miles from Miami and, and um, a little more modern. And, and so we were real happy to get there. Well, we arrived there in 1959. And we were there just a few months when Fidel Castro uh, came into town victorious. I remember when he came to town, I put some fruit on my little basket on the bicycle and went down to meet the rebels coming into town in tanks and shared my fruit with them. We were all uh, optimistic that this was going to be good for our country. Of course, as you know, Fidel Castro was only in power a few months when he began to be uh, very anti-American. And uh, the people of Cuba became very nationalistic. So that if you were an American in, the United in Cuba at that time, things became difficult. We even had things like members who uh, uh, were very faithful tell us things like, uh, we can't wait till Fidel Castro tells us it's time and we're going to come take your furniture in your home. So we had to kind of live under those uh, feelings where the members had a, a, a suspicion that we were there for bad motives. When I was there for about two years, um, my parents decided that it was too dangerous for us kids to be there. So my brother Jim and I were sent to Miami, placed on a train and sent up to Upper Columbia Academy. <laughs> uh, I was a sophomore and he was a freshman. When we arrived at Spangle, we hardly knew English. And uh, our, of course, our, our nicknames were Fidel and Castro. And whenever <laughs> we said something, like, people sort of uh, laughed because our English was very poor. Latino. Latino. That must be why I like tacos so much. <laughs> <laughs> so we enjoyed Spangle immensely and uh, tried to adjust to the new culture. Unfortunately, my two brothers have never been able to adjust to the new culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not listening. You don't need they're to do extra slams on them. <laughs> so yeah. how how long were they? You went to UCA and then your parents were there. How long did they stay in Cuba after that? Um, if I remember, it was about six months after we left that my mother and my youngest brother also moved out of Havana and moved to Miami. She worked in Miami while my dad continued uh, working in Cuba. Um, it was about a year after that that he accepted a call to be Union Evangelist for the uh, uh, Intra-American Division. And so he traveled from Panama to Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and they held uh, campaigns, evangelistic campaigns in those countries. Man. You know, back then when a person left to be a missionary, you didn't plan on just one or two years. You sort of dedicated yourself to a different way of life. And after you were down there 15, 20, 25 years, uh, many of these missionaries came back to the United States. And it was just hard for them to culturally adjust. But one thing I'm proud of with my parents, I don't think they ever saw it as a time of sacrifice or that they were being deprived. They enjoyed being there. They made genuine good friends with uh, the uh, people where they lived. And uh, 
I always thought they fit in very well and the people uh, treated them very nicely. We enjoyed growing up overseas, by the way. So he went to the inner, he was doing evangelism, your dad. And how long did that go on? So you went to UCA, like, was he doing that for another five, ten years? I think it was another, if I remember right, two to three years. Okay. And then uh, they accepted a call to Renton, Washington. Of course, our ki- us kids were elated that, uh, you know, our parents are going to be here in, in uh, the United States again. And uh, we got to go home for uh, weekends and stuff. Um, and then he's been, he pastored in uh, the Washington Conference and the Upper Columbia Conference and uh, one of the California conferences after that till he retired. He retired right here in Coeur d'Alene. They lived here, let's see, he passed away about 11 years ago, and they lived here about 15 years before that. He was a member of our church here in Coeur d'Alene. So did you ever think to yourself, someday I'm going to be missionary? That was my plan. Um, I took theology in college, and uh, uh, then I went to the seminary for a three-year postgraduate course, received a Bachelor of Divinity, and uh, I had a call to the Washington Conference. The first little church we were assigned to was in Ording, Washington, nice little church, and after being there one year, they moved us to Bellevue, and uh, I was the pastor of that church for two years. Uh, I enjoyed it. The conference could not have treated me nicer. I did not have any uh, theological disagreements, but I just didn't really enjoy preaching. It just seemed that I was never quite ready, even though I spent hours and hours studying. Something about having a sermon every Sabbath and week of prayer every Wednesday night. Plus, we started um, a Spanish church, which um, has grown a lot since then. Plus, I tried to have 10 Bible studies a week. It's just sort of a goal I set for myself. And um, uh, I basically did not enjoy preaching. (laughs) I enjoyed visiting. I enjoyed the members. I enjoyed working with the church. But, you know, some people can't wait to get up and preach. They want to always have the pulpit. That wasn't me. Okay. So you went to Walla Walla. Mm -hmm. You met Bonnie. Your mother. My mother. (laughs) (laughs) Just trying to trying to keep it uh, neutral for all those out there. You met mom. Was she pretty pumped about doing mission work? She was. She wanted to be a pastor's wife. She sort of arrived to college um, saying that there was one thing she was not going to be was a doctor's wife. Interesting. So after we, um, I was a pastor for three years, um, and I decided I was not comfortable with that. I tried to think, what could I do where I could use my training and perhaps my experience uh, in continuing a work which I thought was um, some branch of God's work and not just self-serving. And so I thought of medicine. And after uh, two years of being pastor at the Bellevue Church, uh, I took the sciences that I needed. I took the sciences at University of Boise and University of Washington and then applied to Loma Linda. Unfortunately, they accepted me. 
So that's where I took my training. So meanwhile, your brother, who's a year younger than you, he was already going through medical school while you were a pastor. Is that correct? He was done by then. Okay. So did you kind of, hey, ask him what he thought and that type of stuff? He was an encouragement. Right. He enjoyed his work. And when he'd tell me about what he was doing, I thought that's something I would enjoy too. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you go to medical school. You're there for four years. You get a residency. In Southern California as well? Yes. And uh, my plan initially was to be a family doctor, but a fellow by the name of Michael Jones came and he said, we need a resident at OBG, uh, in OBGYN uh, in our uh, hospital at Glendale. And um, you know Spanish, you'd be particularly helpful to us. And so um, we went there for... Our residents sort of changed their specialty. <laughs> and uh, after finishing my OBGYN residency, we came here to Coeur d'Alene. And during residency, your uh, pesky oldest son was born. Is that during residency or medical school? Uh, our favorite son, Andy, was born during <laughs> medical school, the last okay. year of medical school. <laughs> and then why'd you choose Coeur d'Alene? What, uh... Well, you know, uh, that's interesting. We Like, you know people up here? We did. But um, the hospital at Walla Walla um, was recruiting us and brought us up there to look at their hospital and um, what their OBGYN program was like. There was a pastor here at the time by the name of Henry Lamberton. And he said, you know, why don't you come by Coeur d'Alene on your way back? There's a doctor here by the name of Dr. John Cutting who's looking for a partner. And He's you, an OBGYN. you knew Henry Lamberton from Walla Walla? From Walla Walla, okay. I worked one summer at his at his farm, okay. and uh, so on the way here we came to uh, look into uh, the practice of John Cutting. We liked him, we liked the practice, we liked the area, and uh, soon after that we decided this is where we wanted to come. <clears throat> okay. We thought we'd be here one or two years, see how we liked it, then probably find a permanent place. But uh, as you know, Coeur d'Alene grows on you. We love it here. And then you were here a few years, and then your younger brother came, and you started a practice together? After uh, two years, right. Uh, Randy, my brother, uh, came and joined our practice. and um, Around he, the he same been time, my, the light of, of your <laughs> life was born. <laughs> Okay. Life-changing event. Yes. <laughs> and the rest is history. Well, very nice. So I'd love to hear a few stories, kind of mission stories. I know um, Grandpa came to our class when we were at LCJA, and he would tell a few stories. And one of his stories was they were on the Amazon, and there were seven pastors. And they had no food. They were going up the river to some village, and it had been raining. And then all of a sudden, like a fish jumped, and... Another fish jumped, and all of a sudden, there was just bow, bow, bow. Fish were jumping. They started jumping into the boat, and then it calmed down. And they had seven fish that had jumped into the boat. Mm. And one of his favorite parts of that story, when he would tell it to me, he'd be like, and one guy was seasick, so I got two fish. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, there you go. But it's always amazing to me, these stories that we hear, And just situations culturally that are so different than what we see here. 
kind of when you're on the front lines, you know. Mm. So, yeah, just um, they don't have to be miracle stories or whatever, but I'd love to hear some uh, oh, be your glad. experiences. I'd, I'd like to tell you a couple, maybe miracle stories, okay, because uh, overseas at that time they seemed quite common. And since uh, my family experienced them directly, maybe I can share one or two. Um, my dad once went to visit some members that were high in the Andes, back where you never saw any sign of population. One of them would come out once a year to get salt. And I know when my dad went back to, he pulled out his camera to take a picture, and they all started running. They thought it was a weapon. <clears throat> but... Uh, it took about three days of hiking after you reached the end of the road and got off the bus. And he was together with another pastor and a guide. And they were going up the Andes, and of course, sometimes it gets very cold, and you go a long time without seeing anybody. And um, one night when it became very foggy, and they could follow the path, but they were lost. It was getting very cold. And they thought, I don't know if we're going to survive out here in this cold weather. And right about then, a man showed up in a very outstanding, almost show horse. And he was a very cultured gentleman. And he greeted them. And they said, do you know where we might stay tonight and get some warmth? And he said, you go up here just a little ways, turn right. You go a little ways, there's a family that lives there. And they will be glad to put you up for the night. And they did that, and it turned out it was just a delightful family there. There was uh, um, toughing it out there. They gave them food, put them up. They were anxious to hear matters about the Bible. And then they went on the next day. But my dad, he uh, you know, contemplated about it later. He thought, there, there aren't those kind of horses up there. All you, all you see are little scrawny horses. And to find a gentleman like this, so cultured and so informative and so helpful and so courteous, it's just uh, almost impossible. So he always thought that that's once, one more time when the Lord uh, um, delivered them. Do you want another story? Yeah. Okay, Keep them coming. <laughs> this is one which is well known in Colombia, or was in those days. There is a... Uh, school in Medellin, Colombia, an Adventist college. Well, when they started it up, of course, authorities and the ruling church were very opposed to it. And um, when they got the buildings up in a well, one fellow decided he was going to go put poison in the well. And he bought some poison. He went to the well one night, pulled up the lid, and was about to pour it in. We looked inside, and there was a bright angel looking up. Mm. That just illuminated the whole well. And it scared him so bad, he grabbed that poison and he ran home. He put the poison in his medicine cabinet. And a little while later, a while later, he became ill and he asked his maid to find him some medicine. <laughs> well, the maid went and wouldn't you know it, she gave him some of the poison. And when he realized he was about to die, he made that confession to the maid who came and told us about how he went to poison the school and uh, how an angel had so oh, miraculously protected the school. So 
Again, those are uh, there are many stories like that that go on and on, and and um, all of a sudden you realize this business of God is real, and He really is interested in the lives of His people. And where something like a miracle is needed, uh, He does not hesitate to provide it. Hmm. How did you um, cope with the cultural differences? I know when um, I hear stories of people go somewhere and then all their stuff keeps getting stolen and this happens and, you know, stuff gets trashed. And that can be pretty discouraging. I know I would probably throw in the towel pretty <laughs> pretty quickly. How, um, how do you guys, how do you manage that growing up? Because there had to be times where you're wondering, we're trying to do good. Yeah. And yeah, and the people you're reaching out to, um, not only are not grateful, but sometimes they become sometimes they become hostile and suspicious. You tend to have more than they do, which also makes it a little rough and probably a little harder for them to accept you. On top of that, on top of that, the culture is just different. Norms are different. What is right and wrong is to some degree different. Um, let me give you an example. We had some chickens, and we had pens in which they were locked. Well, people keep kept stealing our chickens, <laughs> so we had it all wired with a huge alarm on the side of our house. Whenever somebody broke the lock, while well, that alarm would go off, and I can't tell you how many nights that alarm went off. <clears throat> well, uh, our church and school were nearby to our house, and it wasn't. It was. Uh, it wasn't unusual for that alarm to go off right during church. <laughs> so we would turn the alarm off during church. Well, sure enough, wouldn't you know it, during church, some people entered our house this time and stole. And um, we came home, and pretty soon, a few Sabbaths later, it happened again. It got so bad that we had detectives actually come and stay in our house while we were on our way to church. <laughs> and you just sometimes have to live making those kind of adjustments, which here would seem so unusual. Particularly Columbia, where this happened, was known for uh, a lot of stealing. Uh, women did not dare wear nice earrings because someone would come up behind them, pull it out, put them out of their ears and run with them. The story is told that uh, Americans sent two very trained detectives down there. They helped catch some of the thieves. And they got off of the plane and they were going to sign the contract. And they put the paper in front of them and they went to reach for their pen to sign the contract and it was gone. <laughs> Somebody had already stolen it. <laughs> but they got quite crafty. We had many things stolen a lot. But that's, that's part of life down there. And uh, if you're going to go down there and be unaccepting of the way things are done, you probably won't feel very comfortable. So did you pick some of that up? Like when you came to UCA, did you steal everybody's stuff? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I guess that's good. You know, I will say, I want to say again that uh, one thing I appreciate about my parents is they never seemed to see this as a life of sacrifice. They enjoyed it immensely. And uh, whenever they came back to the United States on furlough, they liked telling about how sweet life was over there, even though it was very difficult. And I've, uh, I've appreciated that. You know, the good Lord doesn't ask us to do anything 
I don't think if it's not a way of leading us to greater joy. Someone has said, what do you give up when you follow the Lord? Well, nothing but a sin-polluted heart for him to cleanse. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, your parents definitely, they had a passion for adventure. And they were stubborn. So they didn't, they didn't get down. <laughs> Genuine Germans. <laughs> Genuine German. A couple more things. First of all, so Spanish was your first language? You know, we knew English at home. Okay. Uh, we talked about it, but we sort of developed a Spanglish at our house where uh, around the table we'd talk Spanish and English, and sometimes uh, Spanish would turn to English right in the middle of a sentence. But since we all knew both languages, that worked fine. Yeah. Do you mind saying, do you like it, I like it, yonchi rice in uh, Spanish? <laughs> That's an imitation of Chinese in Spanish. It's my favorite. Ah, man, that's the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and so just kind of going back, rounding back to Cuba, I know you, uh, you were talking about the Castro stuff. Can you tell the story of the baseball, like the baseball game? Oh, yeah, I'll do that. My dad, uh, he was just a little guy, but he had the heart of a lion. And uh, he was also very American. <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably wear a Trump hat. <laughs> two of them. <laughs> they did two to fit on, on that huge, glorious head of hair that he had. <laughs> uh, but once we went to watch a baseball game that... Um, included the Cuban team and a team that came down from Florida. Well, we sat in the stadium, and here about four rows ahead of us enters Castro. Uh, I don't remember Che Guevara was there, and all the big wheels sitting right in front of us, just four or five rows. Well, of course, when the ball, ball game went along, whenever the Cubans got a hit, the place just went wild. Whenever the... Americans got a hit. It was deadly quiet, except for my dad, who would stand up and clap and yell as loud as he could. And if you all remember, those of you who are here, uh, he had a terrible, embarrassing, loud voice. Whenever he'd come into church and start singing oh. immediately, everybody turn around <laughs> yeah, and look. Where that? Who's that guy singing <laughs> with a mic? <laughs> uh, so anyway, but that's that's the way he was. We had. Uh, Were you worried, like? Going home after that? Worried about well, someone? I probably was, but it didn't seem to bother him very much. We had some hairy times there. Uh, we lived at a in a home where to the west of us there was a police station and to the north of us there was an army station. And I remember once a B-25 came flying down from Miami to uh, spread pamphlets over Havana, anti-Castro pamphlets. Well, right when they got over our house, wouldn't you know it, they started loading their papers. And all these, this army compound and the police station start shooting at this plane right when it was flying over our house. And of course, in our, in our home, we all laid down on the ground immediately. And he took another couple of swipes in the area and the, the shooting continued. Uh, and then he le they le the plane left. As soon as the plane left, why, here came officers picking up all of these papers and wanted to know if we had any. Uh, because they wanted to confiscate them all. Those are the kind of things that uh, uh, make life exciting and, and at times scary. 
So kind of coming back uh, full circle here, where would you like to see our church five years from now? Well, this might get a little critical of the way we are, but uh, I wish we were a little more on fire for the things of God. I wish God's matters mattered more to us. Sometimes I think we're a little lukewarm. And, uh, you know, but I'll have to admit, sometimes I think people are lukewarm and I get to know them a little better and I find out, boy, these people, they they know God and they really want to do God's will. So sometimes that's more my perception, perhaps. But I do think that uh, as a church, we could be more interested in God's work. Probably a little more interested also in encouraging each in encouraging each other I think sometimes we're sort of uh, suspicious that what the other one's doing is not altogether right and instead of affirming each other uh, it's easy to sort of look at the others in ways that divide us rather than make us really love each other more so those are a couple directions I think we need to affirm each other more and I think we need to um, just spend more time and be more willing to enter into the things of God. Yeah. So the church as a whole, world church, kind of the same point. You know, you've you've been very involved. I remember growing up, I come in and you're studying a lot. You've teached, taught, not teached. You've taught Sabbath school for years and years and years. Um it's been a passion of yours, and I know many people, including myself, who have been very blessed. So I guess, kind of looking at that, you've you know you've seen the church, you've done a lot of studying how it's kind of moved and where it's come from. Um, what would you, you know, without being <laughs> too critical, it's a, but it's it's nice to dream, you know. What would yeah. you love to see? let's say, five years from now. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good point, and uh, you're right. That does concern me a lot. I think there are several issues, of which two concern me a lot, that are pivotal in our denomination right now. Many people don't realize how close we are to having some large sections separate. And the issues are, number one would be authoritarianism versus democracy. You know, we have um, from the very top committees of compliance, which uh, are trying to lead groups of people to where they don't feel God is leading them. I don't know how else to put it. And that can become very divisive. So the issue of authoritarianism versus democracy is one pivotal point in our church. Another one, which I think our lesson is covering this uh, quarter, I think is very important and it's central to where we go is the idea of whether we are going to be fundamentalist in our interpretation of scripture or are we going to be analytical and uh, of course how you approach that makes all the difference in the world how you see things like women's ordination um, so uh, for those who are wanting maybe give a brief description of those fundamentalism Basically, what fundamentalism says is that all scripture, every word, is God-given. Okay, that's one. Word inspiration. Number two, that all scripture applies to all time and with the same authority. 
Number three, everything in Scripture will be fulfilled. Well, now, you know, we came, you take, for example, the, the um, introduction to Selective Messages and the introduction to Great Controversy, where Ellen White gives a completely different description of inspiration. Inspiration, God takes the man where he is with his own understandings and gives him a message to convey. He um, delivers the message within his own culture, within his own understanding. God never chose to change or update his understanding of science. You have the firmament still being a dome. You have four corners of the earth. You have the earth being the center of the universe with the sun going around the earth. Um, those were not the things which Scripture was meant to address. I think that's part of what Jesus promised in John 16, don't you? The Holy Spirit uh, will lead you into all truth. I have many other things to say to you, but you cannot now accept them. The Holy Spirit will lead you in truth. So I think that truth is an ongoing matter where we work with God and the Holy Spirit. So that's more of the analytical approach. That's the analytical approach, right. Um, if I may give you another example, which probably is not quite as uh, clear, but I think it's a way of approaching it. You take, for example, the story of Abraham. God telling Abraham, I want you to take your son, your favorite son Isaac, to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Wow. Now the fundamentalist would say, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. It may not be all right for you to kill someone, but if God says to do it, it is okay. In other words, God is good because he does it. He doesn't do it because it's good. Do you follow the difference there? Yeah. And little approach would say, now wait a minute. That is so contrary to what Jesus said about the Father. I'm having trouble there. How can I understand this in a way that is consistent? How can I say, Jesus, what you told me about the Father doesn't fit here. How am I going to understand this? And so you really struggle so that the picture of God is not um, incoherent. You know, it's be like if somebody told me my father was a child molester. I'd say, wait a minute. I don't care who you are. I need to do some massaging here to where it fits with what I know. And so I think the analytical approach would be to say, some of those difficult passages of Scripture, we take a look at Jesus and we say, now wait a minute, in light of what Jesus said, the far clearer revelation of God which we have in Jesus, how am I going to understand this? Uh, Ellen White put it this way, all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation needs to be interpreted in the light that shines from Calvary. Wow! All of a sudden, all of those violent passages and things which I don't understand very well have a way of giving me permission to reinterpret them in the light of what Jesus said and did. At least that's helped me. Some would say that that posture is rather liberal, but uh, I think it's a dependence on the Holy Spirit and where the church looks to God and, okay, God, what is really loving? What is really the way you'd like to lead me? And it's going to take us the steps beyond where our earlier believers and forefathers uh, had been. To me, and this is probably not correct, but I almost feel 
we're naturally lazy as humans to some extent. And we like to just have the answer given to us and whatnot. But to have this view that you are speaking of takes work. You are never there. You've never arrived. You're constantly having to work on it, to improve, to change your view, to find um, God and how he's displayed through scripture, through you know the spirit, through nature. Um, you can't just rely on something you've had and that's, oh yeah, that's settled and that's what it says there. No, he, uh, like any good relationship, it requires a lot of effort and a lot of work. I think you're right. Um, and you know, I think Jesus called us to do just that kind of contemplation. This matter of the Christian life is not just research. It's also contemplation. Where are you leading me now? Otherwise, why would Jesus say, as you would have others do unto you, do ye so unto them? Wow, on this is based the whole law and the prophets. So you see, that takes a certain amount of uh, reflection, doesn't it? It's not, it's not spelled out. It's no, yeah. It has to unless be. You, unless you're a masochist, hopefully that'll yeah. help get you the right place. Yeah. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for uh, spending a few minutes here. Any closing, uh, closing remarks? Well, thank you for the opportunity to visit with you, and I want to say that I love this church. Um, I am very indebted to this church. I think uh, one of the reasons our whole family has enjoyed the community of the saints so much is because of the quality of the saints that are here at Coeur d'Alene. So thank you. Amen. I like it. <laughs> Special thanks to Tony Henneberg for spending some time and letting us get to know him a little better and to Ryan Bell for music. For more information about our church, visit cdaadventist.org.